Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 34, Leviticus chapter 23, continued. As we uh, continue our examination of Leviticus chapter 23, it's all about the biblical feasts, also known as the appointed or designated or fixed times. Now, we've looked at Passover and the Feast of Matzah, unleavened bread so far, and we're going to continue the order of the feasts as they are on the Hebrew religious event calendar. So, let's reread a short section of Leviticus 23, we're going to read from verses 1 through 22 to begin today. Open your Bibles to Leviticus 23. We're going to start at verse 1. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim as holy convocations, are my designated times. Work is to be done on six days, but the seventh day is a Shabbat of complete rest. A holy convocation. You're not to do any kind of work. It's a Shabbat for Adonai, even in your homes. These are the designated times of Adonai, the holy convocations you are to proclaim at their designated times. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, between sundown and complete darkness, comes Pesach, Passover, for Adonai. On the 15th day of the same month is the festival of Matzah. For seven days you're to eat Matzah. On the first day, you're to have a holy convocation. Don't do any kind of ordinary work. Bring an offering made by fire to Adonai for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, After you enter the land I am giving to you and harvest its ripe crops, you are to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He is to wave that sheaf before Adonai so that you will be accepted. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Shabbat. On the day that you wave the sheaf, you are to offer a male lamb without defect in its first year as a burnt offering for Adonai. It's a grain offering. It's to be one gallon of fine flour mixed with olive oil, an offering made by fire to Adonai as a fragrant aroma. Its drink offering is to be of wine, one quart. You're not to eat bread, dried grain, or fresh grain until the day you bring the offering for your God. This is a permanent regulation throughout all your generations, no matter where you live. From the day after the day of rest, that is, from the day you bring the sheaf for waving, you are to count seven full weeks. Until the day after the seventh week, you are to count fifty days, and then you're to present a new grain offering to Adonai. You must bring bread from your homes for waving. Two loaves made with one gallon of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits for Adonai. Along with the bread, present seven lambs without defect one year old. One young bull and two rams. These will be a burnt offering for Adonai with their grain and drink offerings, an offering made by fire as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. Offer one male goat as a sin offering and two male lambs, one year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest will wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before Adonai with the two lambs. These will be holy for Adonai for the priest. 
On the same day, you're to, re, uh, you're to call a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. This is a permanent regulation through all your generations, no matter where you live. When you harvest the ripe crops produced in your land, don't harvest all the way to the corners of your field. Don't gather the ears of grain left by the harvesters. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner. I'm at an eye, your God. Okay, verse 9 serves as a break between the instructions for the combined feasts of Pesach and Matzah, Passover and Unleavened Bread, and what's about to follow them. And what is about to come is instruction for the first, for the, rather, for the feast of first fruits and for the feast of weeks. The feast of first fruits is in Hebrew, Bikurim. And the feast of weeks is in Hebrew called Shavuot. Now, what is key about verses 9 and 10 is that it, they say that Israel will not be celebrating the feast of first fruits until they enter the promised land. The reason's logical. Until Israel conquered Canaan, they had no first fruits of harvest to offer because they, they didn't till land and raise crops during their wilderness journey. Now, Bikurim and Shavuot, which are being discussed in these verses, are agriculturally based feasts. A spring and then a summer feast. So it was going to be more than 40 years after leaving Egypt and more than 40 years from when this law was being received on Mount Sinai before they would first be celebrated. After, after all, okay, these Israelites were wandering around in mostly desert wilderness. They bartered and they purchased grain and dried fruits from traders who probably came to them in enormous droves. Right? I mean, I don't want to get off the subject, but we must be practical if we're going to understand what went on in the daily life of this wandering horde of three million people. Okay, where did they get their food supply? Well, while in the wilderness they ate only meat from their flocks and herbs, uh, herds when the animal was part of a sacrificial offering in the wilderness tabernacle, therefore for now manna was their main food supply. But we're also going to see mention that they ate bread in this journey. Okay, since they didn't grow grain. Where'd they get it? Okay, from traders. Look, you just don't move three million people around without everybody and their brother knowing about it. If Israel's movements were not done in secret, you know, kind of moving from cave to cave and nobody knew where they were. Right? I mean, the plume of dust that arose from those three million people as they moved along, couldn't have been hidden. And can you imagine the dust going up in the air from all those people, from loaded carts, untold hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of animals as they moved along? You, you can't conceal that. And when they camped, there were probably scores of thousands of campfires burning simultaneously, sending their smoke billowing skyward like a volcano. It, 
It would have been visible for scores of miles in every direction. Traders and merchants would have descended upon them like fleas on a camel and stayed just outside the camp boundaries for probably the entire 40-year journey. What was the medium of exchange, though? What would they have used for money? Exodus 12.35 Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Many of the Israelites were loaded. They had lots of silver and gold and precious jewels to buy what they needed from foreign traders. They got it from the Egyptians. But you know, it's, it's not hard to imagine that, that it was an uneven wealth. Some had a lot, some probably very little. Some made good use of it, some squandered it, like on the collection that was made for the golden calf. So not everybody enjoyed a supplement of grain and fruit to their daily diet of manna. And we hear in the passages of Exodus and Numbers the grumblings of those who didn't get enough of those supplemental foods to satisfy them. Now the feasts of Bikurim and um, Shavuot can get easily mixed up, especially among English speakers, because they are both feasts of first fruits. And sometimes we're going to find them both named and called the Feast of First Fruits. Even worse, Bikurim means first fruits in Hebrew, so both the spring and summer biblical feasts of first fruits are technically Bikurim. Typically, though, Bikurim is the designated name, the title, for the spring feast of first fruits and Shavuot as the name, rather, Shavuot is used as the name for the summer first fruits festival, which has become more commonly known as the Feast of Weeks. Now, the spring feast of first fruits, Bikurim, was just a one day event, just as Passover was just a one day event. And verse 11 says that the day this feast was to be celebrated, was on the day after the Sabbath. In other words, Scripture doesn't actually assign it a fixed date like it does for Passover, Nisan the 14th for Passover. Rather, the determination for the timing of the Feast of First Fruits is actually based on what days of the week Passover and then unleavened bread fall. This reality has led to competing traditions being developed over just exactly when to observe Bikurim. Okay. And this is at least partly because this Leviticus scripture passage is unclear even as to which Sabbath, which kind of Sabbath it's being talked about. Right? That is, Bikurim is to happen um, the day after which Sabbath? Is it the standard seventh-day weekly Shabbat, or is it one of the other kinds that are associated with the feasts? There was a lot of argument among the sages and scribes as to how they were going to 
make this determination. Okay. In, in the end, without our going into all the reasoning behind the decision, it's become the most accepted tradition, an underlying tradition, that first fruits is to occur every year on the fixed day of the 16th of Nisan. Okay. That is because the decision was made that the Sabbath of verse 11 is not the seventh day Shabbat, but it's referring to the Sabbath that is the first day of unleavened bread. Remember, the first day of unleavened bread is always a Sabbath. So Passover is Nisan the 14th. The first day of unleavened bread is Nisan the 15th. It's also a Sabbath day and a day for preparations. And since the Feast of First Fruits is to occur the day after the Sabbath, then First Fruits was deemed to be the 16th. Okay. Again, understand, not all Jewish sects agree with that. There are some, like the Karaites, that do not agree with that. Particularly the Karaites. They say, no, it's referring to the seventh day Sabbath, so it disconnects first fruits from Passover and um, unleavened bread, and it could be several days later. Okay. Let me say that another way. The way it's now done, and the way it was believed it was done, by best scholars, at least in Jesus' day, all right, was that the three biblical feasts occurred rapid fire, 14th, 15th, 16th. What happened in the years before that seems to be a mixed bag. Now, on first fruits, the first omer from the spring barley harvest is to be brought to the priest for sacrifice to Jehovah. You're going to hear this among the Jewish people talk about the counting of the omer. All right. And in the context of first fruits, the omer is simply a sheaf of new barley. This day of bringing the first omer, as it's called, is very significant in religious Judaism, and so it's greatly anticipated. Okay. We'll often hear the religious Ju uh, Jewish community speak of counting the first omer. That day of counting the first omer is Bikurim, first fruits. And because of the Levitical laws, the produce from the spring crops could not be eaten until first they'd had a dedication ceremony to Yehovah because essentially that's what first fruits was all about. Once each Israelite had offered the first fruits of his harvest, then he could begin to eat the produce of his own fields. But not until then. I mean, so you can understand the expectant nature of this feast. For some months since the end of the fall harvest, the Israelites had been eating mostly dried and roasted grains that they had preserved. While acceptable and nutritious, it sure wasn't the same as recently fresh. Israelites were thrilled when first fruits rolled around. And then they could begin to enjoy the new fruits of their labors, the new fruits of their fields. 
So this day of first fruits was also important because it was the beginning of the countdown clock to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, later called Pentecost in Greek. Beginning on Nisan 16, two days after Passover, 50 days were to be counted. And on that 50th day was Shavuot, Pentecost. On each of these 50 days, in an omer of barley was brought to the temple. Thus, a total of 50 omer would be presented with the 50th occurring on Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. This is what they mean when they talk about the counting of the omer. They'll count 50 eventually. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way up to 50. Now, the first fruits grain was presented to the priest who would then present it to the Lord by means of what is called tenufah. And tenufah is what we translate as wave offering. Okay. The priest would hold the sheaf of grain about shoulder high then move it side to side and then up and down. Okay. The idea was that he was presenting it to Yehovah and asking for his acceptance of it. And on the same day as the sheaf was offered as this wave offering, an ola, a burnt offering, was to be offered, and the chosen animal was to be a yearling male lamb. In other words, a young ram. Okay. And as we learned several months ago, in the earlier portions of Leviticus, whenever an ola was offered, a minka had to accompany it. A minka was a grain offering consisting of moist, raw dough, uh, cooked, cake-like dough, or grilled flatbread. In addition, the first fruits were to include what's called a libation offering. Libation means liquid. So it's sometimes, like in the King James, called a drink offering. Depending on the occasion... The libation could be water. Here is wine. Now one note, by the way. When the Bible says wine, it means wine. Fermented grapes. It's not grape juice like we think of it. The only grape juice in use in those days had to be drunk virtually immediately after squeezing the grapes or it quickly spoiled. A matter of a day or two. And they did drink some of that. It was kind of a, it was a treat. When they were squeezing the grapes at first, they would dip a little. The fermentation process of making grapes into wine served a twofold purpose. It created a very healthful drink that could be stored for long periods of time. And it provided an alcoholic drink which made for relaxation at joyous events. Now, the usual word for wine in Hebrew in the Old Testament is yayin, Y-A-Y-I-N. And it means wine that's been fermented for a modest amount of time. Its alcohol content was quite mild, very akin to a modern table wine. Some wine, though, was allowed to ferment for a long time. And it, of course, resulted in something more akin to brandy or hard liquor. Now, the goal 
of this fermentation period, this extra long fermentation period, was to make a potent alcoholic drink. But when that was the case, he reused a different word. Shekhar. S-H-E-K-A-R. Shekhar. Yayin, regular wine, is almost always spoken of as a good thing throughout the Bible. It is Shekhar, strong drink, which is typically spoken against. And it is not so much that Shekhar is highly highly alcoholic that's the problem. It's that the purpose for the Shekhar was not for holy consecrations or for health. It was just to get drunk in the fastest way possible. Now, as we get to verse 15, the topic switches from the feast, from the spring feast of first fruits, Bikurim, to the summer celebration of Shavuot, Pentecost. Two loaves of bread are to be brought and given to the priest who will offer them as a tenufah, a wave offering. And as a side note, the two loaves of bread that were used here were called hamets, meaning it did have leavening in it. Since it was a rule that nothing with leavening could ascend and approach the altar of burnt offering, this meant that this bread, this hamets, had to be presented at the foot of the stairway that led up to the altar. Ascension to the altar occurred when the priest took that first step. So he would have stood back from the stairway, looked up at the elevated altar, and waved the loaves in that direction. To carry those loaves up those altar steps would have been a terrible defilement. Okay. So along with these two loaves now, seven, seven young male rams are to be offered, plus one young bull and two mature rams. Now, while our Bibles leave out the words young and mature, the original Hebrew words tell us that that's the case. The seven lambs are in Hebrew what they call kebes. K-E-B-E-S. Kebes. Meaning, young rams. The word used to indicate the age of the bull is par. And it means a yearling as opposed to a mature bull. Where it says two rams in addition to the seven, the word is ayil. And it means fully mature. These offerings are all of what the Olah class, the burnt offering class. And so we also see along with them the use of the grain offerings, the mincha offerings that traditionally always accompany an Olah. But in verse 19, verse 19, another class of offering is called for. It's called the hatat. H-A-T-T-A-T. Using a male goat. Then a shlamim offering is used. Alright, using two more kebas. Young male lambs. And the two lambs of the shlamim are also to be as a wave offering, a tenufah. Now, I want you to notice something that's not coincidental. Every one of these sacrifices for first fruits is a male. 
Every one. And every one of the first four biblical feasts that overlap and run concurrently, Passover, Matzah, first fruits, and then 50 days later, Shavuot, has something profound to say about Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The animal offerings presented to the Lord during each of the required sacrifices for each of these feasts had to be males. Jesus is the ram of our salvation. You with me? He's the ram of our salvation. Now also notice that the 50th day, Pentecost, Shavuot, was also a designated Sabbath day. Again, not the seventh day Sabbath, right? but another feast day during which time normal labors were to cease so that celebration and a gathering together could occur. Now let's back up to the spring feasts for, for a couple minutes. To the time of Bikurim, first fruits. What is the significance of the Feast of First Fruits for the believer? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.20 But now that Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Yeshua is the first to be bodily resurrected as a result of his own finished work. And we see from the observance of Bikurim after the first fruits of the harvest have been presented at the temple only then may the people join in and partake of that harvest. Yeshua rose first and with his second coming will rise from our graves just as he did. Okay. First fruits is indicative of the resurrection. It has a, a, a physical, earthly component and a spiritual component as do all the biblical feasts. The first fruits of Leviticus 23 were observed by the Hebrews for many centuries, for as long as the temple existed. Today, they are still celebrated, but differently, of course, as there is no temple to bring the omer of grain, or the animals, or the hamet's bread, and so on, too. Jesus brought the meaning of first fruits to the spiritual level. It was always intended to be, and he did it at the perfect moment. In our day, first fruits looks back as a commemoration of that time when Christ arose from his rocky tomb. It is now for his followers a celebration of remembrance. It's a finished work. Now, let me add this little mystery, which I hope to uncover for you. Just as after the first omer, the first fruits of the barley were presented to God, the people were then able to partake of the grain themselves. Now that the first fruits of the resurrection, Yeshua, has been presented to Yehovah, when can we, his followers, partake of the resurrection? Is there a feast that embodies that day? Yes, there is. All right, and we're going to 
discuss that observance pretty soon. Now the section on the feast, uh, rather on the spring and summer feasts, now ends with the instruction, a reminder, that field owners are not to harvest all of their fields. They're to leave a sufficient quantity untouched for the poor to come and glean. Let's move on a little further. Leviticus 23. We're going to read now from verse 23 through 32. Verses 23 through 32 of Leviticus chapter 23. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, in the seventh month, the first of the month is to be for you a day of complete rest for remembering, a holy convocation announced with blasts on the shofar. Do not do any kind of ordinary work and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. Adonai said to Moses, the tenth day of this seventh month is Yom Kippur. You are to have a holy convocation. You are to deny yourselves. You are to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. You are not to do any kind of work on that day because it is Yom Kippur to make atonement for you before Adonai your God. Anyone who does not deny himself on that day is to be cut off from his people. And anyone who does any kind of work on that day, I will destroy from among his people. You are not to do any kind of work. It is a permanent regulation through all out all your generations, no matter where you live. It will be for you a Shabbat of complete rest, and you are to deny yourselves. You are to rest on your Shabbat from evening, the ninth day of the month, until the following evening. Adonai said to Moshe, I will stop there for right now. Do that in a section in a minute. Okay, we leap now from the spring and summer feasts to the fall. And the seventh month of the year after Babylon was called Tishri. And and this is when the fall series of feasts begin. But keep in mind that while Tishri is the seventh month of the religious event calendar, for the Hebrews it's the first month of the civil calendar year. Oh yeah, that's fun, isn't it? Okay. Thus, the first day of Tishri is the Jewish New Year, also called Rosh Hashanah, meaning head of the year. And this feast also eventually became known as the Feast of Trumpets due to the mitzvah of verse 24, which says that the celebration on the first day of the seventh month shall be accompanied with loud blasts, meaning trumpet blasts. Now, Yehovah also ordains the first day of the year, of the new year, as a Sabbath. As we've seen several times now, it is not the seventh day Sabbath, so the first first day of the new year does not always begin on the Shabbat. It's another kind. And be aware that this is actually a third kind of Sabbath that we've now been introduced to. The seventh day Sabbath, called Shabbat, is the every week celebration of the seventh day, the day God ceased his work of creation. The the Shabbat requires a complete sensation of any and all kinds of work. The other kinds 
of pseudo-Sabbaths we've been discussing that are all connected with some of the biblical feasts are different from the Shabbat in that A, they don't fall on many particular day of the week. B, they do not necessarily require that all work cease. Just your typical daily work, usually. And these pseudo-Sabbaths are not necessarily days of rest, but are often days set aside for you to do a different kind of work. Preparation for the feast. The kind of Sabbath called for on the New Year's Day, however, is just like the seventh day Shabbat, in that every kind of work is prohibited. It's a day of complete rest, so it's almost like having an extra Sabbath day, an extra Shabbat. It's not a day of preparation. And although it is a day of complete rest, still a special sacrifice for that day is brought to the altar. Well, exactly nine days later, on the tenth day of the seventh month, which is Tishri, is perhaps the holiest day of the entire year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, Jewish New Year combined with Yom Kippur is often referred to among the Jews as the High Holy Days. Perfectly apt name. Now, Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year, also called the Feast of Trumpets, should be very significant to us. One of the things I need to tell you is that in reality, you will never find the words Rosh Hashanah in the Bible. Instead, you'll find the words Yom Teruah, okay, which means blast of trumpets. We're actually going to talk about that. I don't know if it's this week or next week on Sunday morning in Joshua. We're going to talk about it extensively because it's got an interesting connection to the New Testament. Um, in the Bible, the blowing of trumpets generally was a call to the whole congregation to assemble, to come and assemble before the Lord either for reason of a holy convocation or as a call to war. Now today, as we gather in this place, we are standing at a point in history between the spiritual fulfillment of uh, Shavuot, Pentecost, on the one side, and the spiritual fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets on the other. We stand here. Okay? If we look back to the past, we can readily see that all three spring feasts and the single summer feast have all been fulfilled by Yeshua. As we turn and look ahead to the future, it is the spiritual fulfillments of all the fall feasts that we await. And the next one to come is the Feast of Trumpets. Yom Teruah. We call it Rosh Hashanah. Because when the trumpet sounds, it indeed is going to be a call to assemble for God's holy ones. It will be a call to to a holy convocation because we're about to be gathered so as to be presented to our Lord Yeshua as he comes back in the clouds, our mighty King. But it's also going to be a call to war. Finally, after thousands of years of preparation, the war to end all wars will be fought and swiftly won 
by Yeshua, Messiah ben David, the mighty warrior. Amen. Amen. And just as all the other seminal events of Jesus' ministry occurred on their exact prophetic feast days, I have full confidence that all the future ones will as well. Let me repeat that even though I've made the point before. Yeshua was killed on Passover day, put into the tomb on the first day of unleavened bread, and arose on the feast of first fruits, Bikurim. Then 50 days later on Shavuot, the Holy Spirit began to indwell men. This is not my speculation. The New Testament clearly states it. Therefore, I look for that mighty trumpet blast from heaven that signals the return of our king to occur on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, in the not-too-distant future. I readily admit, I can't be 100% sure that all the final acts of Jesus will be on the fall feast days, but boy, would it ever be a drastic break in pattern if it didn't happen that way. I think it's going to happen that way. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is the next to the last biblical feast. Yom Kippur is a very somber day. In fact, while the spring feasts have a great and joyous tone to them, the fall feasts are actually much more subdued in their tone. When one can finally grasp what all these feasts signify from a spiritual standpoint. You know, it's not hard to understand why Yehovah made each of these seven biblical feasts not only with its own purpose, but its own character. The spring feasts brought with them a release from the curses of the law. They brought the condemnation of our sin upon sin to an end. They purchased our freedom and redemption from eternal spiritual death. Now let me state for all to hear, it was not a release from the principles or commands of the law, it was a release from the punishment due to us for our trespasses against the law. New life arises from these spring and summer festivals of Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then Shavuot. But the fall feasts rightly have a lot more bittersweet flavor to them. For while the coming of Yeshua is going to be good news to many of us, it's also going to signal destruction for the majority of mankind. Death and misery are going to be unleashed upon this planet on a scale that's not imaginable to our human minds. And it will be purposefully unleashed by Yehovah. And we're told that if he doesn't stop short of it, instead of when it might stop on its own accord, that nothing would be left. No life at all. Our planet would become just another sterile rock among the countless trillions of other sterile rocks that form our universe. Now, I'd say soberness of thought and tone 
is called for here, wouldn't you? Oh, I suppose if we thought only of ourselves as redeemed people and what eternal joy awaits us as a result of the Lord's coming wrath upon this world, I guess we could be looking forward to this time with great cheer and happy expectations. But what are we to think about the dead-end future for some of our spouses who reject our faith? Or the nice people in our lives who mean so much to us and the warm fellowship that accompanies those delicious meals at our special gatherings with so many people who don't know Jesus and really don't want to? What about our precious grandchildren? whose lives have just barely begun and they prefer video games to Sunday school. And for them, Jesus is just some plastic doll in the nativity set. It's no wonder that Yeshua's coming is in the Bible called the great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay. To amplify the soberness of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, verse 27 says, You shall practice self-denial. Or depending on your translation, it might say, You shall afflict yourself. Okay. Please understand that this is not a call to do harm to yourself. To slash your body with knives or have nails ceremonially driven through your hands or have a crown of thorns smashed down on your head until your scalp bleeds. It's not what it's talking about. Rather, the idea is to refrain from food, to fast, to deny yourselves everyday comforts. And the first person who refuses to bow down to these demands placed on them, Yehovah, is said that he will be cut off from his people. So says the word of God. And the one who does any work violating the principles of the Sabbath shall perish. Now, it's interesting that the book of Leviticus and other passages in the Bible explains that one of the primary purposes of the Day of Atonement is to purify the sanctuary. Meaning, of course, the tabernacle and later the temple. The place where God dwelled among men would gradually become more and more polluted simply because of its proximity to imperfect and sinful men and even to the physical contact by the priests, who are also imperfect. Okay. So it was one purpose for the Day of Atonement to cleanse it all so that God would remain in his presence here. Okay. From the day of Pentecost, from Shavuot, almost 2,000 years ago, disciples of Jesus have become the sanctuaries of God. Not symbolically, but literally. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, dwells in every believer, just as he at one time dwelled in the temple of Jerusalem. Okay. Our spirits have been made clean, but were our bodies perfected? Of course not. Our bodies still age and die. Our minds still accept or even revel at times in doing evil. The Bible tells us that at our resurrection, when Yeshua returns, our corrupted and ruined bodies will be exchanged for pure ones that are utterly incapable of defilement. That is, our sanctuaries, our bodies, 
where God dwells will be purified. The day of atonement. The purification of the sanctuary. It just gives me goosebumps to see all these pieces that come together in the feasts. Let's finish off Leviticus 23. We're going to start at 33 and read to the end. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel on the fifteenth day of the seventh month is the feast of Sukkot for seven days to Adonai. On the first day is to be a holy convocation. Don't do any kind of ordinary work. For seven days you're to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. And on the eighth day you're to have a holy convocation and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. It is a day of public assembly. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. These are the designated times of Adonai that you are to proclaim as holy convocations and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai, a burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, each on its own day, besides the Shabbats, the Sabbaths of Adonai, your gifts, all your vows, and all your voluntary offerings that you give to Adonai. But on the fiftieth, on the fifteenth day, rather, but on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered the produce of the land, you are to observe the festival of Adonai for seven days. The first day is to be a complete rest, and the eighth day is to be a complete rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruit, palm fronds, thick branches, and river willows, and celebrate in the presence of Adonai your God for seven days. You are to observe it as a feast to Adonai seven days in the year. It is a permanent regulation. Generation after generation, keep it in the seventh month. You are to live in a Sukkot for seven days. Every citizen of Israel is to live in a Sukkah. So that generation after generation of you will know that I made the people of Israel live in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I'm Adonai, your God. Then Moses announced to the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai. Well, we arrive now at the final biblical feast, Sukkot, also called the Feast of Tabernacles, or just Tabernacles, or even the Feast of Booths. It was also called the Feast of Ingathering, the final harvest of the year. Now, Israel was an agricultural-based society, so it ought to come as no surprise that all of the biblical feasts were based around the growing seasons. The spring feasts of Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits, centered on the first of the grain harvests, and the first crop of the year was always barley. Shavuot focused on the second of the grain harvest, which was usually spelt or wheat. Okay. The three fall feasts centered around the last of the grain harvest, the final ingathering of all the field crops before winter set in. And then the land went fallow, and then the rains would eventually come to give moisture to the ground for the following year's crops. Now, all of these elements, in one way or another, were included in the ceremonial rituals surrounding the Feast of Tabernacles. And it should also come as no surprise that Jehovah and Yeshua and his disciples, along with Paul and other writers of the New Testament, would tend to use agricultural motifs that the Israelites were so familiar with to draw parallels to critical spiritual matters. 
Yet these parallels between the physical world of agriculture and the spiritual realm of God weren't allegory at all. They were just illustration. Okay. All of these various biblical feasts illustrated and foreshadowed prophetic events at the same time that they commemorated earthly history and served immediate purposes. There is perhaps no greater example throughout the Bible of the reality of duality at work than these seven biblical feasts. Recall that on the physical side of the reality of duality, the Passover commemorated that great and dreadful night of Israel's release from captivity in Egypt when Jehovah killed all the firstborn of Egypt who wouldn't bow to his will by accepting his saving provision of painting the blood of a young ram on the doorpost of their homes. But the spiritual side of the reality of duality of Passover now commemorates that great and dreadful day that Yeshua, the Ram of God, was crucified. And his blood was made available to be painted on the doorpost of our lives so that all of us who trust in him are released from our captivity to sin and from our debt to God for our violation of his laws. Next recall that the physical side of the reality of duality about the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorated that joyous day that Israel began its journey away from Egypt's grip. On that day, they made bread up without leavening so that they could hurriedly leave the land of Goshen on their way to freedom. This was the beginning of the Exodus. But on the spiritual side of the reality of duality, that same feast commemorates the entering of the tomb by a deceased Jesus. The family and friends of Jesus had to hurriedly put his body in the tomb because a Sabbath was coming. And like the bread of the Exodus, it had no leavening to cause its decay. Okay. So Jesus' body had no sin, which is always symbolized by leaven, to cause its decay. Next, recall that from the physical aspect, the Feast of First Fruits celebrated the New Year's field harvest. But from a spiritual aspect, Yeshua arose from the tomb on First Fruits, the first of the resurrection of the dead, the first of the harvest of all those who had been made righteous by Yeshua's blood and atoning blood, by Yeshua's death and his atoning blood. The next feast down the line would be Shavuot, Pentecost. It was time to start 50 days after first fruits. From a physical aspect, Shavuot celebrated the summer harvest, the second harvest of the year. From a spiritual aspect, it was that day that Jehovah sent the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within men. The first harvest, first fruits, gathered Jesus into the kingdom of God. The second harvest, Pentecost, gathered men into the kingdom of God. And as we come to Sukkot, 
the Feast of Tabernacles, we of course have this same dynamic at work. It has a spiritual side and a physical side to it. Let's take a little while. We're going to take a little while, actually, this week and part of the next to study this feast and, and, and understand it more thoroughly. The first day of this seven-day-long feast is to begin each year on the 15th day of the seventh month, Tishri. It corresponds in our day to kind of a September-October time frame. And the words that we typically see in our English translations say that the name of the feast is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Again, in Hebrew, it is Hag Sukkot. Remember from our previous lesson, Hag means pilgrimage. So this feast, Sukkot, is one of the three that requires every male Israelite to come to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate it. Now, two quick things. Notice I said males. It was not necessary that the entire family make that journey. But once a boy reached the age of 13, then he had to come just as his father did. Second, notice that the reason for the pilgrimage was to make sacrificial offerings at the temple. Coming to the city of Jerusalem wasn't the issue. Coming to the temple was the issue. It's just the temple was in Jerusalem. We have some people today, Jews and Gentiles, who have come to the conclusion that males still have to go to Jerusalem for these feasts in order to be fully obedient to God about this. That's not so. The whole point of coming in Bible times was to make a sacrifice at the temple. But since there is no altar and there is no temple, there's no way to completely follow that law. Further, since the point of the pilgrimage was to make a sacrifice, and Yeshua is the once and for all sacrifice, there really is no sacrificial element that can be fulfilled today. It's been done. That said, I can't think of a better time to go to Israel and visit Jerusalem than on one of those three pilgrimage holy days. I've been there for one of, uh, on, on all of them. Okay? It is moving. It is instructional. It is very worthwhile. Okay? But to think that one is fulfilling a biblical feast command by going to Jerusalem for these feasts and believing that if you don't, you're being disobedient is misplaced zealousness and it's just error. The point is the temple. Okay. The first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, God declares it to be a Sabbath. Not the Sabbath, a Sabbath. By calling these other non-seventh-day Sabbaths, Sabbaths, I'm only using the common way of speaking um, as among Jews and Christians. Actually, in reality, this is very sloppy scholarship. And it's a very poor use of the word Sabbath because the Torah does not designate these as Sabbath, Shabbat days. Rather, the words used to denote these special days that I have been calling extra Sabbaths is Kodesh Mikra. Kodesh Mikra. 
a holy convocation. Because these designated days of Kodesh Mikra have a requirement that you abstain from normal work, which is similar but not exactly the same as the seventh day Shabbat. Over the centuries, the word Shabbat has come to be adopted to connote even those special days, all of these Kodesh Mikra. This is a very sad error that's led to a lot of confusion. What I'm telling you is that in the Bible, in the original Hebrew, it says Kodesh Mikra. It's only more modern that just to make it get a point across, we'll say, oh, it's another Sabbath day. You with me? Okay. Now further, the day after the end of the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, in the Torah it's referred to as the eighth day, is another Kodesh Mikra, one of those other Sabbaths. Now, unlike the other feasts, for Sukkot, the sacrifices must be brought to the temple on every single one of the seven days of the feast. So, it was a very costly endeavor. But Sukkot was considered the most joyous in the end of all the feasts. A whole variety of sacrifices are called for here in verse 37 and then later on in chapter 29 of Numbers. Here in Leviticus, three kinds of sacrifices are called for, even though it's typically hidden by our English translations. Ola minkan zevashlamim. Now, I'm not going to go into all the characteristics of each of these because we've covered them extensively before. If you, if you weren't here for those lessons and you need a refresher, then either go to our website or get a CD all right, and, and, and review, review those lessons. I want to go into much more detail on the Feast of Tabernacles observation. So we're going to do that next week.